Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is the Maritime Ireland radio show, which is all about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. The sea around our coastline, our inland waters, our lakes and rivers are all part of Ireland's marine sphere, vitally important socially and economically to this island nation. Ireland's connection with the sea is as old as time itself. Maritime Ireland brings together the maritime community, which everyone is welcome to join, and is broadcast on 18 radio stations around Ireland and on podcast. There is huge variety in the maritime sphere, shown in the amount of information, suggestions and comment which we're getting from listeners, and for which, thank you. The maritime sector does deserve more national attention and support, from the government and from the national media indeed. Things are improving, but there is some way to go before it's regarded as it should be, a primary, vital, economic support to Ireland. There are great people in the marine sector, like this man, who's determined to achieve his ultimate ambition. Every time I go sailing, I I, I want to keep going to the horizon, so uh, this time I'll do it for quite a long time. I'll be chasing the horizon for eight or ten months, you know, so I hope to be the first Irish person to, to, to do this. That'd be nice. It would indeed. What Peter Lawless wants to achieve is not just chasing the horizon, that might not be unique. What he's hoping is that he will be the first Irishman to sail non-stop around the world. Others have sailed the world's oceans, non-stop hasn't been done by an Irish sailor. And we'll hear on this edition about the long-legged spider in the Waterford Estuary. It's seven long spindly legs that go down into the river and we always thought it looked like a spider walking out across the spit down at Passage East heading towards the river. Author Andrew Doherty will regale us with his story of what the Cheek Point and Passage East boats know well because the river spider showed them their way. And we'll be at that big demonstration by fishermen in Corkport and hearing more than the national media reported. Peter Lawless, originally from Limerick, lives in Onascall near Dingle these days and intends to sail non-stop around the world, leaving from Kilrush in the Shannon Estuary in August. He has hereditary linkage with this type of sailing. He's son of the late solar circumnavigator Pat Lawless from Limerick. Peter, in his 53rd year, took a break from working on the 41-foot yacht, which has his own world oceans experience and which will carry him on the voyage when I spoke to him. We ranged through all his preparations. What to do if a medical emergency occurs, how to stitch himself up, how to have good meals, and that's particularly important to him, as you'll hear. What his family thinks about this voyage, and what people have said to him about it. Well, a lot of people are surprised that I'm so looking forward to it. Uh, I suppose a lot of people are wondering, you know, why, why I want to do it, but... Most people are, are genuinely interested and very supportive and, and find it fascinating. So why do you want to do it? 
Um, I've sailed all my lifetime. Since since we were children, we sailed with my mum and dad, and we we grew up with it. You know, all all the times on the estuary or up the lake, and it's just something I've consistently done all my life was sail. And I suppose the, the ultimate sailing experience would be to, a sort of circumnavigation for me personally. I mean, not for everybody, but that's just me and. I suppose every time I go sailing, I was only telling my brother the other day that um, every time I go sailing, I, I, I want to keep going to the horizon. So uh, this time I'll do it for quite a long time. I'll be chasing the horizon for eight or ten months, you know. So I suppose that's why I, I decided to do this. When did you start sailing, Peter? We grew up in Limerick. Uh, my dad had a Galway hooker. Well, I'm the youngest of, of six children, so when I was growing up, my dad had, uh, he had uh, I think it was a, a Glutchog or a Pukon, the 26-foot Galway hooker, and he kept her on the River Shannon and, and up on Loch Derg. So I grew up sailing up there, um, and I, I started out in, in uh, there was a family friend had an optimist, so I just borrowed that when I was about four, and then I just uh, progressed up to different dinghies, and when I was 12, I got a Shannon 1 design, a lovely, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with them, a, a lovely timber open boat, with uh, a gun to rig a single sail. I sailed her all over Loch Derg. And I just progressed up from different boats over the years through there, buying old ones and kind of fixing them up when I was younger. And, and I, just, I just never stopped sailing. I just, I, just, I just loved it from day one when I was a kid. Well, we, we kind of, we had a summer house in, in uh, west of Dingle as well. So we, we spent a lot of our childhood here, and my dad had a, an old um, a Corrock, a Nevogue, a traditional canvas boat. So we used to do a lot of boating in that as well, and fishing, and out to the Blasket Islands. So we, we were always surrounded by water or the sea in some way, and um, we just we just all all my brothers and my sister Helen, we all we all have a big love of the sea and of nature. And of course, you've already got quite a bit of experience, as, as your dad had too. Um in extensive sailing, this won't be your first um, in deep waters, so to speak. Yeah, my dad started his own um, solo sailing, and I think I think in '86 he sailed he sailed uh, solo uh, across the Atlantic to Newport, Rhode Island, in in a 26 foot folk boat. Uh, the following year he sailed her back, and then he just continued on in, in different voyages in '96. He came back into Kilrush, actually, into Kilrush Marina after a three-year circumnavigation. So we, we, we've all grown up with um, long-distance sailing. And I always admired and, 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 you know, I loved my father. We all loved my dad. Um, so we, we, all, we all grew up with long-distance sailing, not as a norm, but, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was something we, we, we were familiar with all the time. So I suppose... I always thought in my own head that it'd be something. It'd be be really cool to do that myself. So now, now I actually am, and I, I can't believe it. Still, I can't wait to, to to set sail. Really, Tom, you know. What's your biggest one up to now? Biggest one up to now. I I worked for the last good few years as a delivery skipper, so I've delivered yachts all over Europe, uh, England, Ireland, Spain, a lot of the Med, Greece, Italy, Sardinia, all that. Uh, I've sailed. In, in Canada and America. Uh, this will definitely be my biggest trip and, and my longest time alone, which will be interesting. But 
that's something in an odd way I'm kind of looking forward to. I think it, I, I like my own company, so I'm, I'm looking in that regard, even though I'm quite social, but uh, this will definitely be my longest time um, alone at sea, so it, it, it'd be something to... Um, to, to, to look forward to and, and, and I'm curious you know it's going to be great I think it's going to be fantastic So your dad and I remember interviewing him after his voyage many years ago he kind of inculcated I suppose this long distance solo sailing so tell me so what's your plan? Um, that's guess you interviewed my dad yeah uh, I'm sailing Arrival 41 she's a beautiful big displacement uh, yeah, she, she's a beautiful sea boat with a lovely motion and a very safe, solid boat. I'm, I'm delighted with her. I hope to be the first Irish person to to, to do this. That'd be nice. But uh, the trip is just a personal trip. Uh, it's something I've always wanted to do, and uh, I feel now is a great time to do it. I mean, I'm fit, I'm healthy, uh, and as I said, I have a great boat under me and and a great support team and committee. It's just everything has fallen into place. It's just now seems to be a great time to do it. Have you set dates for when you intend to set out? Um, I hope to leave very early August uh, from Kilrush. I think that's a nice location. It's a good geographically. It's it's kind of nice. It's just straight out to Shannon, and um, it makes makes it easier for family to come. And you know, it's just that. So August, I decided to pick uh, as a good time to, for departure, Tom. And what's your estimate now? It's difficult to answer such a question because it's so dependent on sea conditions and so on and so forth. But you're looking at a few months anyway, aren't you, all alone? I presume I estimate between eight and ten months. I'd bring food for 12. It's fascinating to think the amount of logistics you have to go through, uh, preparing enough food, the equipment in the boat, uh, the amount of fuel you can carry for emergencies. There's obviously a pile of work to be done. Yeah, that's that's a good question because that is a lot of work. I mean, getting, getting the food right and the water right are, are essential, obviously, and, and keeping the food interesting, you know, uh, I'll have a lot of freeze-dried food, but it'd be nice to have, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm practicing make, making bread. I know that might sound simple, but it'll be such a luxury. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, you know. So the simple things, I mean, to bake a loaf of bread would be such a, an uplifting experience at sea. Even to smell it would be lovely. So getting the food right will, will be tricky and, and keeping the weight down. I mean, obviously weight will be a factor and, and an issue. So, uh um, diesel, I'm not worried about our fuel because I don't, I, I'll just bring a tank of diesel, that'll be it, but I, I don't envision using, using my engine too often, or too too much hopefully, it'd be nice to have a full tank in an emergency, but yeah, there's lots of other things to factor in, and you know, just weight, weight is, is the thing, not to be overloading the boat, but I definitely want to have nice food, you know that's important. People will ask listening to this, what on earth makes a man want to set off alone into what can be dangerous seas, as we all know, they can be lovely, but anybody we ever hear of going around the world has to be prepared to encounter the worst as well as the best. So they'll wonder, why why do this? Why do you want to go sailing all alone for so many months? <laughs> That's another good question. <laughs> um, 
And like I said earlier, I I, it's, I I just love the ocean. I love sailing. I, I I just love. I spend a lot of time on the boats, whether I'm working on boats or on my own boat. I, I I'm happiest when I'm at sea. So I always thought at some stage myself and my wife Kathy would would go off and you know maybe do the Caribbean and even down to the Canaries and you know just at a leisurely pace. But I wanted to do this first and and just. I don't know, I suppose it's just something to take off that I've always wanted to do. I mean, I, I grew up reading, you know, Joshua Slocum, like all other sailors. You read these beautiful books, uh, Bernard Bortissier, you know, all these all these stories. And they, they'd always appeal to me. Um, and I think just, just to do it would be just incredible. I, I mean, I'm quite a sociable person, Tom, and, you know, I, I enjoy social activity. But I, I'm lucky or, or odd, whatever way you look at it, but I enjoy my own company as well. So the, the, the solitude isn't going to be a big issue for me, you know. Uh, in fact, in an odd way, I, I, I even look forward to it. I think it, it's going to be um, interesting, you know. So some people probably say I'm mad and some people probably say good man. And, but uh, I wouldn't do it if I, if I was even the slightest bit concerned, you know, about that length of time alone. You know, I, I definitely wouldn't. Do you have to do much work on the boat itself because of the demands that will be on it? Yes. Uh, I've been working on this for over two years, two and a half years now, I suppose. Uh, I mean, um, yeah, there's, a, there's an amount. I couldn't even begin to list one. I, I marked three things off the list and I put four back on. <laughs> and of course, one of the things that you'll have to do is to be able to look after yourself because people who've gone around the world like that, they even have to be medically able to look after themselves don't they you have a huge lot to um prepare for yeah i i uh, i've actually uh attended courses i did um higher than first uh, you know i did first aid responders and i i have to learn to stitch myself and stuff like that and wow well i thought why not i mean why not i i got to be my own doctor my own i have to be my own dentist i have to be cook mechanic everything so I mean, I'd hate for something simple to to uh, to mess to mess up my plans. Now, obviously, you, you're going to be as careful as you can, but accidents do happen, as you know, Tom. So, yeah, I'm very well prepared like that. Uh, emergency equipment. I'll have I'll have a lot of up-to-date emergency equipment and you know radio equipment, satellite equipment, so I can communicate with shore. Even if there was a problem, I could get medical advice or I'd bring a lot of uh, medicine, broad-spectrum antibiotics, things like that. I'm going to be very well prepared. I mean, I'm going to give myself every chance I can, you know, to make this successful. If you're going to do it, you got to get your equipment, your boat. You have, you know, you can't excuse the language, but you can't have a half-hour attempt. You know, it has to be, it has to be properly done. Um, like my dad used to always say, preparation is the essence of success. You know, I, I want to make sure I have a backup of a backup of a backup. Tom, uh, I'd be foolish if I didn't. Peter Lawless, bound for eight months alone on the world's oceans. I really enjoy talking to him. His brother Pat, age 66, also based in Kerry at Ballyferreter, has focused on entering next year's Golden Globe race, non-stop around the world in older-style boats and without modern equipment and also sailing alone. That's the race in the 2018 edition of which Dubliner Gregor McGuckin, who we talked to on the Maritime Ireland radio show about his experience, was forced out by heavy damage to his yacht and had to be rescued in the Indian Ocean. 
and the 41-foot-yacht Waxwing, which Peter Lawless will use, was sailed by Peter and Susan Gray of the Royal St. George Yacht Club in Dunlera on an eight-year trip around the world. Since we were last with you, shipping developments included a new weekly load-on, load-off container service between Southampton and Cork Port, launched by Unifeeder. It's intended to add Dublin Port later. And Samskip has added Waterford Port to its weekly container service between Dublin and Amsterdam, and that's less than five months after the service started. The 750 TEU capacity container ship Edith, with faster operating speed, is being introduced. Waterford is developing a number of aspects of its port services. And it's from that port that comes our story about the long-legged spider in the Waterford estuary, which has fascinated me since I read about it in the book Waterford Harbour Tides and Tales by Andrew Doherty. It's a piece of maritime history. That was a kind of a, a, a local name or colloquial name, I suppose, for what's known in technical terms, I suppose, as the Passage East Spitlight. Uh, and it's seven, seven long spindly legs that go down into the river. And we always thought it looked like a spider walking out across the, the, the spit down at Passage East, heading towards the river. And so, so that's where the spider lake light comes from, really. And it started away back in operation in 1867, one of four built in the country with a new type of technique or technology, perhaps, if that word can be used away back in that time. It was um, a, a concept or a design by um, a Dublin engineer by the name of Alexander Mitchell. And he, had, he, he was intrigued by this, this problem of trying to light uh, areas where uh, there wasn't a solid surface underneath, so you couldn't build the traditional lighthouse. And he, he hatched on this idea, apparently opening a bottle of wine and using a corkscrew, to, to screw into place um, metal poles upon which then you could, you could actually build structure. So seven of these uh, metal poles were screwed into place using a capstan winch. And of course, you would be well aware of the capstan winch being used on ships for uh, lifting their anchor or whatever else like that. But the sailors would use the capstan winch and they would sing sea shanties. And apparently Mitchell used the same system for driving these poles into the bank of the spit down there. And in three other locations, one in Cork, which you'd be well aware of, another on the River File, and the fourth one was up in Dundalk. And all, all of those are still in place as far as I'm aware. Two fascinating points from your piece about the long-legged spider in your book. Mitchell was blind from the age of 22, despite coming up with this idea. And who's putting them in and the Captain Winch as you mentioned it on that principle, actually sang shanties. It's quite a thing to think of. I suppose the whole... Mitchell himself seems to have been a real go-getter as an engineer. He was involved in many different um, inventions or um, businesses and seems to have done very well for himself and his family seemed to follow him into into, into trade and work with him. Uh, the whole notion of the Capstan Winch, of course, and the sea shanties was the sea shanties were used as a way of keeping a rhythm 
And I suppose also from um, the monotony, you know, sparing yourself from the monotony of some of the tasks that were involved. And given the the, the, the physical task of screwing into, well, I won't say solid ground because it was more, it's like a sandy, shelly bank that's there below passage. And, and But it would still have been hard enough, I'm sure, to go down as far as he possibly could in order to get the solid ground. And apparently it took many weeks of, of backbreaking work in order to do it. And of course, they would have also had to work with the tide. So they would have screwed into place the, the piles and then they would have built a platform up from that, and then the, 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 the light would actually be placed on top. The ships inbound at Duncannon were then, they, you know, they, they needed a navigation point, obviously staying well clear of the, the shallow waters, the weir banks and such. So originally it had a red light, a green lens added later. It cost about two and a half thousand, which was pounds, which was a lot of money in those days. And it, it used various methods of powering it, including at one stage, I see from your book, an aga lighting system. Yeah, it, it was it was to light. It was basically the next point to to follow on once you got past the the Duncannon and the the, the uh, sandbar at Duncannon, and you would then follow along up. And interestingly enough, Tom, there's actually several mentions of a perch. So it would have been it wouldn't have had a light on it. And I, I only confirmed this lately with uh, Peter Goulden, who has the Pete's Irish Lighthouses. Uh, uh, blog page uh, so it would have been unlit and the idea being then to put the light there so that ships could travel at night was I suppose was the important feature the other thing that was really interesting about it was that because originally they would have used paraffin they would have had to stay with the light so the lighthouse keeper and an assistant who were appointed at the same time that it became operational actually stayed aboard the spit um, and would have stayed with us all through the night to make sure that the light and the paraffin was, was kept up to, up to embark and that it didn't go out. So when the Aga light came in, which was about 1914, or at least that's when it was being talked about in the Harbour Board as wanting to, or needing to be implemented, that was seen as a real step forward because it was using the settling gas, which burned much brighter, uh, it also it had the technology to be to be to be switching on and off, which means meant that it used less gas, which was more efficient. But the third feature of it, of course, was it had a sun valve, which allowed it to go off once daylight came. So on that basis, it would appear that the lighthouse keeper was made redundant, and just a, a man was set to the task of just maybe keeping an eye on it and keeping the maintenance of it. Couldn't have been very comfortable in such a small space at night anyway. What's the situation on the light now? Uh, obviously, modern technology has moved on from the need for the spit light in, in, in the Waterford Harbour approaches. Well, I, think, I still think it's a really important feature, Tom, uh, because the amount of people who are on the water now, recreationally more so, who probably aren't as well aware as maybe they should be of shallow areas and that, it makes these kind of features, I think, all the more important. Uh, unfortunately, the light itself is in a fairly poor condition and it seems to be getting worse as, as time goes on. And in fact, the, there is a new perch, ironically enough, after being put in place, a stanchion, a metal stanchion driven down just outside of it with a light on top. 
Um, so in one sense, we seem to be going backwards rather than forwards here with, with, with that piece of, of uh, technology. But, you know, I'm afraid the light itself, the, the, the spit light itself, it's, it's in a poor repair at the moment. Um, there, there's a good feedback from, from the port in terms of heritage. So we might be turning a little bit of a corner in relation to some of the features, the heritage features in the harbour, you know. Author Andrew Doherty, The Spider Light is one of the many stories in his book Waterford Harbour, Tides and Tales, recalling centuries of maritime tradition. Andrew was born and raised into a treasure of stories about sailors, maritime people and fishermen on the Waterford estuary and publishes a lovely blog under the title Waterford Harbour, Tides and Tales. On my own blog, which can be read at tomacsweeneymarine.ie, I've been considering the changes in the situation of the fishing industry. Seems like there's a, a change coming in how outspoken fishermen are. They're nothing like the way farmers are. But the very big demonstration in Cork in late May, described in the June edition of the Marine Times newspaper as a powerful shot across the bows of government, seems to have marked a change of attitude. There were about 70 fishing boats in the protest and a very strong sense of anger there with many young fishermen worried about their future and their jobs. A point made to me by Robert Russell from West Kerry. Well, I, I think um, the minister and the Taoiseach need to wake up like they need to start realising they're here to, to look after Irish citizens, not French and Spanish citizens. They're enriching <laughs> communities in foreign countries from our natural resources. We have 15% of, of our own natural resource, we need a fair share. They're destroying coastal communities. Everything spins off of fishing, schools, ho- hospitals, shops, everything. Like our, our countryside has been decimated by the neglect of traditional industries like fishing. We're over dependent on, on tourism. Tourism in the West Kerry area where I come from has been the main source of income. And there's been a big hit there with the loss of, of, of a main attraction there with the dolphin last year. It's going to be a really hit. We need the minister to look at investing in the future of our children because that's what he's messing with. He's messing with the future of our children. And they will have no futures if he doesn't. There's a big issue around harbour fees, even just... A, a rudimentary piece of infrastructure like a slipway, they're charging €100 Euro for a little boat to put it up on it to paint their boat. And we're like, it's penalising. They're obstructing people to get into the... They're trying to get into the fishing industry that have fishing in their blood, that have come from five, six, seven generations of fishing people. There's no gateway into the industry anymore because they're being hampered at every turn, Tom. It's absolutely disgraceful what they're doing to the people that have risked their lives week in week out on top of on the seas hundreds of miles from any hospital hundreds of miles from the shore i often wonder why fishermen remain in the industry tony o'sullivan from castletown bear in west cork has been in it for 30 years things are tough in the industry at the moment yeah at the moment yeah there we need more quota as simple as that we need more fish what sort of keeps the fishermen going in all that circumstance? What, what, is it just the culture, the tradition? Oh, yeah, sure, we don't know anything else. It's the only job we can do now, so that's what keeps us going. We can't do anything else. Fishermen need fish merchants, like the well-known Pat O'Connell in Cork City, who described the difficulties of dealing with the latest European imposition, weighing catches on the quayside instead of at factories. 
Well, on a wet, windy, cold winter's night, when fish is scarce, and I send either my driver or, or myself down to, to collect fish off a pier that we're not, we're not familiar with, where you have ropes, nets, baskets, bed lighting, we're supposed to take fish off a boat, weigh it and put on a truck. And if that's not a health and safety issue in this day and age, I have no idea what is. And I'd wonder who, who will be responsible insurance-wise if something happens to one of my workers or if, happens to, God forbid, happens to myself. It is insane what they are asking people to do. And I think this industry has suffered enough. Backbench Government Coalition TD Christopher O'Sullivan from Fianna Foyle from Cork South West constituency, home of the Castletown Bear Fleet, from where the demonstration was organised by the Irish South and West Fishermen's Organisation, acknowledged that the industry has been badly treated. What's happened to the fishing sector is wrong. Uh, the figures uh, are wrong. 15% of a quota for Irish fleet in Irish waters, while Spanish and French vessels uh, take way more quota. That's simply wrong, whatever way you look at it. Chris Rose Sullivan, an acknowledgement on the behalf of a backbencher in government, and he said he would take back to the Taoiseach what he had seen and heard at the demonstration. But the fishermen clearly don't think the government is listening to them. Another TD from South West Cork, the independent Michael Collins, was pretty blunt. The roots of the problems with Irish fishing is our political parties today. They've turned their back on e-fishermen. In negotiations for this government, I sat before Michal Martin, Leo Varadka and Eamon Ryan. One red liner I said to them at the table of government, and that was, if you want my vote, you have to have a senior minister for fisheries. And they point blankly refused it one day after another. Because why? They have no intention of protecting your livelihoods. They are selling you to the highest bidder, and they have done that. Another show-and-tell demonstration, as organisers call them, is to be held on Wednesday, June the 23rd on the River Liffey in Dublin. Meanwhile, Kogal Ilana Heron, the Islands Federation, has written an open letter to Taoiseach Michal Martin asking him to personally intervene to prevent the loss of hundreds of jobs, a way of life and the key element to coastal communities, to Irish heritage and tradition. The Taoiseach's department sent the letter to the Department of the Marine, to which the Federation had already sent it, but there was no personal reply. And so we end this edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show. In our last edition, I got the depth of the M6 boy mooring hundreds of nautical miles west of Ireland in the deep Atlantic wrong. It's moored 3,500 metres down, not kilometres. Still, that's very far down and needs a lot of challenging work to keep it there. The programme and podcast come from the historic coastal and maritime town of Yall on the East Cork coastline and CRY 104FM Yall. And it's also broadcast in Cork on Bear Island Radio, UCC Radio and West Cork FM. In Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. In Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Canvara FM. On Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, Kilkenny City Radio. And in Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar and Eris FM Belmullet. On South West Clare Radio, Radio Cock of Boschkeen. On West Limerick, 102 FM and Tip Midwest Radio in Tipperary. Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, Spotify and the Marine Times.ie. 
Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime community. The programme website with my regular Maritime blog is tommacsweeney.ie or look up Maritime Ireland radio show. That's tommacsweeneymarine.ie Our email address is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com That's maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com Your views on the marine sphere always very welcome. Our phone and text number 0872 555197 that's 0872-555-197. Sound supervision on the programme by Justin Marr. Until our next programme, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>